0: From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Our Eats.
1: And then the next vat would be chicken soup, and then the next vat would be beef stew, and then, and they just kept coming and coming and coming. And it was this act of profound care in a way that no institutionalized form of care could ever be.
0: This week on the show, a conversation with Elizabeth Cullen Dunn, who's been in Poland on the Ukrainian border, working with refugees fleeing the war in their home country. She brings us stories of everyday people, organizing, cooking, transporting, and comforting families in crisis. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. Corn, soy, and wheat make up about 70% of Midwestern farmland. But as the planet heats up, scientists are developing new crops to replace them, plants that can survive and thrive in a changing climate. Rachel Young produced this story with the Food and Environment Reporting Network. It's about one crop that some scientists and farmers think could be the grain of the future.
2: This is the stuff we're gonna be planting this in that field right out here.
3: Carmen Fernholtz has been farming organically since before the term organic farming was even a thing. He owns A-Frame Farm in Madison, Minnesota where he grows corn, soybeans, and small grains, including one you might not have heard of.
2: Right now, we have about 80 acres of kernza.
3: Kernza, a species of wheatgrass, Some scientists and farmers say we need to change the crops we grow in the face of climate change, and Kernza could be part of the answer. It's a crop that can feed both people and soil in a warmer world, which is a dream come true for Carmen, who cares a lot about keeping his soil healthy.
2: cringe every time I see soil disturbance.
3: By soil disturbance, Carmen means tilling, churning up the soil to plant new crops. Tilling releases carbon into the air as a greenhouse gas. It disrupts all the processes that make soil healthy. Most corn and soy farmers have to till their fields every year because corn and soy, those are annual crops. Kernza is different. It's a perennial grain, so its roots get to stay in the ground for several years, while the plant above ground keeps producing grain each season. Those roots pull carbon out of the air, they build healthy soil, and they make Kernza resilient to extreme climate events like droughts and floods. And if Kernza really takes off, farmers will be able to make money growing it.
2: It's exciting. And to me, it's just a a tremendous gift to our food system.
3: Kernza is also helping Carmen imagine a new future of growing grains. He says he chats with conventional farmers all the time who see problems with the way we farm today.
2: They're seeing soil degradation, herbicide resistance, increasing costs of production. They're sort of on a treadmill with corn and soybeans, and are looking for something to break out of that.
4: People are very excited at perennial grains.
3: Tim Cruz is the chief scientist at the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas. They're the ag research organization that's been developing Kernza for the past 20 years. And they want perennial grains like Kernza to replace the annual crops we grow now. That would mean doing away with a lot of that annual tilling and adding the environmental benefits of perennial roots like Kernza's on millions of acres of the world's croplands.
4: And it's just a matter of getting them to the point where they can actually start to replace the annual crops um, economically.
3: But today, there are just about 4,000 acres of Kernza growing worldwide, most of them in Minnesota. Minnesota is also home to a small but enthusiastic Kernza supply chain as local brewers, bakers, and chefs experiment with niche Kernza products in microbrews, pancake mixes, and dessert bars. National brands are starting to pay attention. Kernza was listed among Whole Foods' top 10 food trends of 2022. Still, don't expect to see Wheaties swapped out for Kernzies in the cereal aisle anytime soon. University of Iowa economist Sylvia Secchi says that for Kernza to actually replace the grains we grow now, we'll need to see major changes to the U.S. Farm Bill first. You can't just change the crops. This is a whole system that we need to uh, modify part of that system? Federal subsidies for annuals like corn and soy, which incentivize farmers to grow those crops, even if they end up losing them to extreme climate events.
1: What we need for Kansas to find its place is changes to our farm policy. For example, if you have crop
3: insurance subsidies for corn and beans, right, you should have them for Kernza. Farmer Carmen Fernholz isn't waiting for changes to the federal farm policy. He's been mentoring young organic farmers for a farming future that benefits the earth instead of degrading it.
2: To start seeing the next generations being engaged in it, there's nothing more rewarding.
3: For the Food and Environment Reporting Network, I'm Rachel Young.
0: This story comes from Hot Farm, a new podcast from the Food and Environment Reporting Network about the intersection of agriculture and climate change. You can listen to Hot Farm wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I'm Elizabeth Cullen Dunn. I'm the director of Indiana
0: University's new Center for Refugee Studies. Elizabeth Dunn is also a geography professor and food studies scholar. We've had her on the show before, talking about refugees working in the U.S. meatpacking industry at the start of the pandemic in 2020. Before that, we interviewed her about her work on emergency food aid for refugees after the war between Russia and Georgia over the breakaway province of South Ossetia back in 2008. When Russia invaded Ukraine in February of this year and refugees were fleeing into Poland to escape the violence, Elizabeth Dunn headed to Poland as well.
1: I went March 9th and I was there until about March 26th.
0: I had a chance to talk with her a couple of weeks ago, here in Indiana, just before she headed back to Poland, where she is right now. Her research is centered around international humanitarian aid for refugees and displaced people. She wants to learn about what kind of aid is helpful in specific situations. She speaks Polish fluently and thought she could be of assistance at the border, and further her research with her colleague, Ivana Kaliszewska, from the University of Warsaw. Just a note, our conversation drifts away from food at times and into other areas of life, which makes sense, I think. Food is not always its own separate subject. It's integrated into other aspects of our everyday lives, in normal times and in crisis. Here is Elizabeth Cullen Dunn talking about her experiences in Poland at the border with Ukraine in March of this year.
1: I went because I've worked in this part of Poland since 1991. So in the early 90s, I actually worked in a factory in the town of Zsaszów, Poland for almost two years. It was a baby food factory. So my first book was about the transformation of labor from communism to capitalism. And I worked with blue collar workers in this sort of town in the middle of nowhere. And now, That town has become the center of the Polish IT industry. It's become surprisingly wealthy. I couldn't, I didn't recognize my own old apartment when I was there because there's a shopping mall all around it now where it used to be sort of communist worker blocks. But Zeszów also became the hub of humanitarian aid to refugees. The U.S. 82nd Airborne is there. They're running weapons and training and other forms of aid into the Ukrainian army from Zhashuv, out of Yashanka airport. And many of the big humanitarian NGOs set up shop there. So we went there, and then we also went to a town called Przemysh, which is closer to the Ukrainian border. And from there, we went to the border crossing points. I was with my colleague, Ivona Kalishevska from the University of Warsaw. So we're looking at these volunteer aid chains, which are people mostly who know each other or who connected via Facebook and who are passing aid hand-to-hand until it reaches refugees who need it or reaches internally displaced people in Ukraine or reaches volunteer military which is almost every man in Ukraine right now. And so this is a crowdsourced war in a way I have never seen. Almost all the humanitarian aid we saw in Poland was coming from volunteers who were not organized in like the standard NGO uh, form, but who were organizing themselves into hand-to-hand chains of aid delivery via Facebook. So we saw, for example, the example I keep talking about is these amazing women called the Ko Gospodin Vieski, which is the rural women's circles. And these are farming women who are part of an organization that was founded in like 1915 and so their neighbors their friends they've known each other for years and years and years and they were on the border when the refugees started coming and so what these women do is what every polish grandma would do they made soup they made vat after vat of soup and it was amazing because people who were crossing the border in march from Ukraine had been in, sometimes been traveling 36 or 50 hours and they were starving and they were cold and it was just miserable. Many of them had come out of open conflict zones. Many of them had waited more than 30 hours in line to cross the border. And as they stumbled across the border, they were met by these Polish women who made sure everybody got a hot bowl of soup. Because in Poland, soup is what you need when when anything goes wrong. It's soup, man. That's the universal cure. And when one vat of soup was gone, a woman would arrive with another. And I even asked them, I said, how do you have these big vats on hand? And they said, oh, we use them for festivals. So they put on these village festivals every year. And that's why they have these thermal insulated containers of soup. Huge, like maybe 20 gallon containers of soup. And Okay, so what kind of soup? Oh, it was amazing. So every woman made her own vat of soup at home with food she grew herself, mostly with food she grew herself. And so, like, you'd get a vat of fasolka um, popretonsku, which is one of my favorites, which is white beans in a tomato broth with slices of kielbasa. That's, that's a good one. And then the next vat would be pickle soup, which is another big favorite of mine, which is a kind of a... Um, Half thick creamy soup full of dill and chunks of pickle. And then the next vat would be chicken soup. And then the next vat would be beef stew. And then, and they just kept coming and coming and coming. Wow. And it was this act of profound care in a way that no institutionalized form of care could ever be. Sure, UNHCR could have shown up, they could have had refugee camps on the border. That's standard procedure. But instead, local people in Poland helped the refugees as they crossed, then helped them get to a transit shelter where they could spend the night and figure out where to go next, then helped transport them to Warsaw or to Krakow or on to other parts of Europe, took them into their homes and fed them for months. Every Polish family I know had a Ukrainian family in their apartment when I was there. So, it was this act of solidarity and neighborliness and care that was something more than humanitarian aid usually is.
0: And it all started with soup. I'm speaking with Elizabeth Cullen Dunn, Director of the Center for Refugee Studies at Indiana University. We'll be back in a moment with more from our conversation. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats. Let's return to my conversation with Elizabeth Cullen Dunn. She's been talking about her recent trip to the Polish-Ukrainian border, where she was volunteering and researching with her colleague Ivana Kalishevska from the University of Warsaw. During their visit, they were struck by the immediate response from local volunteers in Poland and the slowness of the larger, more institutional NGOs who typically respond to refugee crises.
1: We volunteered at the border crossing points, which were all made up of volunteers. Uh, We did not see any of the big aid organizations there until about the 20th of March when World Central Kitchen arrived. And World Central Kitchen actually very quickly, they were late to the party, by then people More than 3 million people crossed before World Central Kitchen arrived, and they were the first big NGO to arrive and start working. But once they got up and running, they were providing 35,000 meals a day. Yeah, but the local women were very upset by this because they wanted people to keep having soup. And, And they found it very upsetting that these foreigners were pushing them out.
0: That's interesting. So they didn't feel relieved that they didn't have to come up with all this food.
1: No, they, they I think they felt they it. wanted to keep doing it, yeah. They, they were really wonderful, actually. And they opened also transit shelters in their villages that were warm and caring. We also worked at two of the really big transit shelters, one in, a, in an old Tesco supermarket where there were thousands of people in Premish, And then we also worked at an old merchandise mart, or what had been a merchandise mart, in Korchovo, and in Korchova, the merchandise mart had these little shops inside it. It was a place where Ukrainians would come to buy things wholesale and then take them back to Ukraine to retail them. And so each of these little sort of shopettes in the merchandise mart had been repurposed as a room for 20 cots. So there were rooms full of Roma people, there were rooms full of people with small dogs. There were rooms full of people with cats. There were rooms full of mercenary fighters who had to come out when a training center about 12 kilometers away was hit with cruise missiles while we were there. So we were a little closer to the action than I wanted to be. So. At this center, thousands of people a day were passing through. And so Yvonne and I worked. We handed out food. We helped translate for people. We helped them find rides onto Germany or France. And we interviewed a lot of the volunteers who had come themselves to provide aid.
0: Earlier in our conversation, Before my mic was on, actually, Elizabeth had mentioned a story she wanted to tell me about pierogies.
1: So the rural women's circles, this is a story that Ivana went out to follow up and do a follow-up interview with them. And she found them in this little village making pierogies, which are little meat-filled dumplings. So sending pierogies to soldiers on the front in Ukraine is a little complicated because there's no refrigeration. And so they reverted to this very old technique which is to sink them into buckets of lard. And the lard creates an anaerobic environment and it keeps the pierogies from rotting so that they are food safe. And so here were these layers of dumplings in layers of pork fat. And Ivana was standing there and one of the women said, oh, well, we also have these thermovisions. And thermovisions are thermal imagers used to find heat signatures in the dark. and Obviously, it's military equipment. And these women were also running military equipment in. So pierogies, I mean, these 50-year-old, 60-year-old grandmothers were running pierogies, soup, and thermal imagers to hunt Russians with. And so they were trying to figure out how to get these things across the border because although the Ukrainian border guards are not particularly picky, you don't want to be too obvious. And so Ivana said she just looked at them and they looked at her and people started wrapping them in plastic and sinking them into buckets of lard. The thermo. The thermovisions. And then they gave the buckets of lard to a priest who drove them across the border.
0: Wait, can I just picture the pierogies in the buckets of lard again? Are they like... In plastic bags and then put in the lard. No, no, no.
1: The they're just put way. directly in the lard because the lard, the fat creates an anaerobic environment, so yeah. they're preserved. There, it's basically pierogies confit.
0: Yeah, So <laughs> and then don't have to oil the pan before you. You eat do water. not
1: have to oil the pan before you fry them. No, they're in good. They're in good shape. They're pretty fat covered.
0: What are you thinking about right now? Like, what is on your mind? What is troubling you? What is keeping you up at night when you think about what's happening?
1: I think, as a geographer, one of the things that's always interesting to me or troubling to me is spatial unevenness. And we're certainly seeing this in the war now, where the, the Russians thought that they could take over Ukraine in five or six days like they did in Georgia in 2008 when I was there. And and the Ukrainians fought back hard enough that the Russians have had to pull back to the eastern regions of Donbass, as well as cities on the coast like Mariupol and Odessa. And so what's happened is that the intensity of fighting is dramatically different from east to west. So the people who are suffering the most are the people that are the hardest to see. You know, they're in an underground shelter in a steel plant in Mariupol. They've been living in the metro in Kharkiv for 60 days. So those people are the hardest to reach and the most in need and the hardest to see. Whereas the people who can exit into Poland are generally the people who are in the best shape, which is not to say good shape. So that unevenness really troubles me. The other thing that's keeping me up at at night honestly, is how, I think, ineffective the humanitarian aid system has been, the international humanitarian aid system run by the United Nations. And part of it is because the UN is not set up to operate an aid system in a developed country. So they come in where to places where there are no markets. So they set up housing, they give people food deliveries from the World Food Program. But that's not needed in a place like Poland, which is after all, in the European Union. So the UN didn't have a mechanism for helping people who still needed help, but were in remarkably different economic conditions. And that meant that the bulk of that work for 3.5 million people was left for volunteers and citizens, just normal everyday people, to figure out on their own because the UN no longer had a mass produced solution for this. This is not the Sudan. It is not tents out in the middle of nowhere. You don't need to give people bags of cornmeal to eat, but you still have to give people things to eat. And we're finding that many Ukrainians are starting to run thin on cash. There is a a wonderful shop in Warsaw called the Help Center on um, Puavska Street, number 20. And this is just a space that, that was kind of a rundown, empty space that was taken over by a bunch of volunteers who have created a shop out of it where everything is free. And Ukrainians can line up and they can come and get groceries and they can come and sort through clothes and pick out clothes they like and take them away. And the line outside that building is nonstop. Hundreds of people. And we thought that over time that line would dwindle as Ukrainians got jobs, as they got settled in. It's intensified. They're running out of money to buy their own food. And, you know, the UN has tried cash transfer plans. The Polish government is giving Ukrainians some cash, but. What they really need is housing and jobs, and the UN cannot provide that to
0: them. Right. And when you're talking about that many people coming into these places, there's not going to be enough jobs. There's not going to be enough housing. I mean, aren't there housing shortages everywhere? Like
1: There are housing shortages everywhere, and they are particularly intense in places like Warsaw. And so when the war broke out, the people who came out could stay in other people's apartments. but. Right. Now it's two months on, can you do this for six months? Can you do this for a year? So people are looking for their own housing and it's extremely difficult to find. What we're seeing is that almost a million Ukrainians have gone back into Ukraine. And we stood in the line to watch the train come in from Lviv and there were more people getting on the train to go back to Lviv than got off it to get into Poland.
0: Well, and that's a question I have for you because I know when this first started, I think I might have heard you say in a in a report that this might not be a long-term refugee situation. People are planning to go back. It's not, you know, let's go to the U.S. and start our new lives. It's like we're, we're planning to go back. Yeah. Do you still feel that way?
1: Yeah, but that's going to be real different depending on where you're from from Ukraine. You know, if the war ended today, you could go back to Lviv and everything would be like normal, more or less. If you went back to Kyiv... Things are starting up to work again. There's going to be a lot of repair and construction that needs to be done. But you can, unless your home was destroyed, you can move back into Kyiv. If you are from Mariupol, that city has been flattened. There's no undamaged building in Mariupol now. And it's going to be years before that city is rebuilt. If you're in Kiev, Kharkiv, it's going to be a very long time before the city is up and running again like normal. And it's not over. And it's not over. And it's not going to be over soon. You know, the Russians have been in that part of Ukraine now since 2014. So they're pretty dug in. And this part of the war could go on a long, long time. So I think we're going to see different groups of people who have differential access to going back.
0: So is that kind of getting back to what you were talking about, about the unevenness? Yeah,
1: about the unevenness of it. Luckily, the labor market in, in Europe needs the workers. And Ukrainians are, in general, quite highly educated. So they are finding work fairly quickly. It's not always work they want. But before the war, there were already 1.8 million Ukrainians in Poland, mostly doing domestic work, but also doing construction, warehousing, those kinds of what we would consider low-wage jobs. So a lot of those 1.8 million Ukrainians are now bringing their family members into Poland with them and helping them resettle there. And luckily, the labor market is absorbing a lot of them, but the housing market is not. So that's going to be the stopper, whether people can find a place to live. And I, I think we will see that there will be at least a million people who cannot go back anytime soon.
0: Well, I wanted to get back just for a second to the food situation. You talked about these uh, just groups of volunteers who were making soup and bringing food and that it was really consistent and really a lot of people doing this. Yes. And then World Central Kitchen came in. What kind of food were they bringing or offering? Well, they had a central food production facility
1: in Premish. They rented a warehouse there. And they were then shipping out food to reheat at all the transit Shelters and at the borders. So pierogies, they they made pretty good pierogies. I ate some of them, potato cheese. It's a classic. They they had some very nice vegetable stews. They they tried to make sure all the food was hot. And then, like everybody else, they were also giving out massive quantities of sugar. You would to seen these Ukrainian kids. Never before have children received so much chocolate at one time. And the kids were like flying on sugar highs for days because. You know, World Central Kitchen would give them candy bars and then they would go to the next tent where somebody had candy bars and then the next tent where somebody had candy bars. And so there was a lot of giving out of sweets also going on. I thought one of the most interesting places that I went was the border crossing at Medica. And this is a place where people are crossing on foot. And so as soon as they crossed through the Polish border control, they kind of came down this long, winding sidewalk. And on Both sides of the sidewalk, all of these volunteers had set up various tents. So there was a Sikh community kitchen that had driven a food truck in from England, and they were giving like samosas and Indian food. That was one of the first ones that people hit. There were lots and lots of groups offering sandwiches, you know, these beautiful Polish Polish sandwiches are the best. It's thick cut ham with butter and cheese, pickles sometimes on these crusty rolls like Kaiser rolls. They're fabulous. So there were tons and tons of sandwiches of all different kinds. The soup ladies were there. So there was a lot of food as people came down the walkway at Medica. There was a guy, I think he was from Georgia, but Georgia the state I mean, he was an American. I know, with me, you have to say this. Um, (laughs) But he was making Nutella-filled crepes, and he had been there for like three weeks, and he had made, I don't know, tens of thousands of these crepes that the kids were running up to get. But he just stood there all day making crepes and filling them full of Nutella.
0: Turns out that guy was not from the state of Georgia. He was from Florida, and she didn't catch his name But she did record their exchange at his crepe stand at the border crossing in Medica.
1: So what, where are you from?
0: I am from
4: Maryland, but I live in Florida, in the U.S.
1: In Florida, and what brought you here to the border? Are you here with a group? Did you organize yourself?
4: I just bought a plane ticket.
1: You just bought a plane ticket? Yep. And so are you the only person in this particular operation? No,
4: uh, Artur is the one who has this tent, and he put this up. I Honestly. came in here, I started asking around, and somebody stuck me with, like, hey, meet this guy, and he's like, asked me if I could do uh, carpentry, I was like, I'm pretty handy, and so I helped him fix a hole in the tent, and then we started building
1: these benches. Oh, nice, so in here. a place for, warm place for people to sit?
4: I wouldn't call it warm, but it's warmer than out here, Yeah. and then uh, we've been, <laughs> since Sunday, we've been hanging out together doing this.
1: Wow, and, and tell me what you're making.
4: Uh... Naleśniki. Naleśniki. I think I, I butcher the word, or yeah,
1: the Polish um, equivalent of crepes. It,
4: it well, it's pancakes. Polish, it's pancakes, yeah.
1: but it's not pancakes to
4: Americans. So we we're still having this argument, he and I. That's a joke.
1: About what Naleśniki? No, <laughs> no. And no. what what are you putting in the middle of your
4: Naleśniki? Uh, you can put anything you want. You could put Nutella. You could yeah. put fruit. He's gone upscale. He started putting bacon and pears in his.
1: Bacon and pears. Yeah, that is really that is upscale. upscale. <laughs> a, um,
4: but but I would say ninety five percent go with Nutella. Uh,
1: are for kids or for adults?
4: Yes, both. 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 Yeah, yeah.
1: Both. And so what? What do you um? What do you think you get out of this? What's what's your benefit?
4: Uh, I haven't really figured that out. It's I don't know. I think it, it's about the kids, like really. I mean, they, they love this. Yeah. That's that's the best thing I've taken from this is like seeing the kids, and it makes them like happy. For
1: a second, yeah. when they're yeah. in, a bad, in the middle of a bed. Yeah, day. and
4: you can joke around with it when you flip it up and act like, you know, I can't even talk to them. But uh, I was wondering, you were taking a long break, weren't you? Oh, thanks. I had
0: really. The guy from Florida at the Medica border in Poland, where people are crossing from war torn Ukraine into Poland and sometimes back again. This American, who speaks only English, bought a plane ticket and headed to Poland to see what he could do. He's flipping pancakes, or crepes, filling them with Nutella and giving them to kids and adults. Anyone who could use a bit of comfort with something handmade and sweet during this time of crisis. It speaks to a long-held understanding about the power of food to comfort and to connect across language across borders. This is Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. We'll be back with more from our conversation with Elizabeth Cullen Dunn after a short break. Stay with us. Kate Young here. This is Earth Eats. Let's return to my conversation with geography professor Elizabeth Cullen Dunn. She's been at the Polish-Ukrainian border, working with volunteers providing aid to Ukrainian refugees. What
1: was interesting was these people were so excited to help that um, that the refugees got asked for if they wanted something to eat like 17 or 18 times in the hundred yards between the border crossing and the bus to the train station. I mean, it was. People were thrilled to help. People felt a moral duty to help. A a lot of Polish people, um, I asked them why they were helping, particularly because there's been this issue where Syrians at the Belarusian border with Poland have been treated very differently. Poland has militarized that border. It's pushed Syrians and Afghans out. And there have been accusations that the Polish government is racist because it will admit Ukrainians but not Syrians. But... So I started asking Poles why they wanted to volunteer to help. And they said a couple of things. One is, of course, Ukrainians are like us. That was a big one. I mean, they speak a language we can understand. If they speak slowly, they eat the same food as us. You know, they look like us. They share our culture. But, But there were other reasons that were more important. And the more important reason was, many people said, because they're what stands between us and Putin. And if they don't fight, Putin will be here at any moment. I mean, many Poles felt this absolutely visceral sense of threat about this, and they believed that by taking care of these soldiers' families, that the soldiers could then fight and fight harder, and that was important. And then there's also the shared, long-standing hatred of the Russians, and Poles almost universally hate Russians, um, and that's. That's historic because of World War II and the communist period. But it's also been whipped up a lot by the current government, which is remarkably anti-Russian. So a lot of Poles were already primed to be very defensive about Russians. And so on the principle of the enemy, what is the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They helped Ukrainians. So I think it's more complex than racism would allow.
0: I was just wondering, like, when you said that there were all these places that people could get food and all these people offering food, what was the atmosphere like in these border crossings? And was it, you know, festive? Was it desperate? Was it like, it sounds like it was a lot of people. Was it stands? Like, how organized was it? Did it feel like chaos? It was complete
1: chaos because the volunteers were organizing themselves, you know, Um, So the buses, for example, were run by the local volunteer firefighters who were running people to the train station. And the food stands were all run by volunteers. So there was no standardization and there was no standard procedure for any of this. It was just sort of walk across the border and here we are to help you. At the other border crossings, it was less chaotic because those people were generally being dropped off at the border, crossing on foot, and waiting for someone to pick them up, someone they knew. So they would sit in warming tents for several hours sometimes, waiting for a pickup. And then they would slow down and have a bowl of soup, and they would get to lay down and nap for a little bit. So things were calmer, and there was less volume of people coming through. But at Medica and at the transit shelters, the atmosphere was sort of strangely carnivalesque. It it felt like a summer fair in a lot of ways with different food stands full of food and people bringing out toys for the kids and volunteers blowing big big bubbles for toddlers and people having food and water for animals and places for animals to get out of their little crates. And so... It did feel very carnivalesque, and I think the Ukrainians themselves were obviously, I mean, desperately worried, and many of them, for many of them, it was like stepping off a cliff. They had no idea what was going to happen. But for the volunteers, it was almost euphoric helping. People were running at top speed to help, they were working really hard to help, and they felt really good about
0: it. Sounds like care on lots of levels, like it wasn't just food or warmth. It was, you know, what what might these families need? What might be helpful for kids who've just gone through something terrible? Yeah,
1: I think that's true, especially this attention on kids. Because most of the people coming out were women on their own with children, or women with their mothers and their children, who then were double burdened. And so this question of how can we help the kids Uh, was really important. So I know at one point the mothers were complaining that the kids were so hopped up on sugar that they were being hard to manage. And so all the volunteers shifted gears and started bringing applesauce pouches so that the kids would have something healthy to eat, which I suppose was still quite a lot of sugar. but, (laughs) But everybody felt like it was more healthy, and that's what mattered. Finding toys and games and distractions was really important. You know, what was interesting about the Ukrainians that I met was that they themselves alternated between being mostly okay and having these moments of utter meltdown. So we talked to a woman who was the single mother of five kids. And the kids were little. I think there was an infant and a toddler and a twin four-year-old. I mean, they were tiny kids. And she had set up a kind of play area for them outside one of the transit shelters in the parking lot just so that they could run around. And she was talking about going back. I mean, she was hysterical about going back into Kiev, which was then being occupied by the Russians. And we kept saying, you can't go back. Now's not a good time to go back. And she said, we left four cats in the apartment. I have to go back and get the cats. I can't leave the cats there. And it was like that was all that she could focus on. She could not think about the bigger picture. It was just too much to wrap her brain around. And she was trying to load up her five kids and go back into a militarily occupied zone to go get four cats. And so we helped her arrange for a neighbor to get into her house and feed the cats, which sort of calmed her down enough that she could think rationally about where to go next, and we helped her find housing in France for the short term at least. But, you know, she was obviously too, too overwhelmed to think about what she really needed to think about. And she was making terrible
0: decisions. I told Elizabeth that I could completely relate to that. So
1: could I. I mean, there's one thing you can control. So go control that. Um, Because the rest of it, you can't even think about or you're going to crash. So we, we saw people like that. And then they would sort of pick themselves up and they would be okay for a while and then they would crash again. So, you know, I think the true emotional burden of the war, we don't know yet. But I do know, and I see it on Facebook all the time in all of these groups, Ukrainians posting to say thank you. Thank you for taking care of my family. Thank you for taking care of me. What would we have done
0: without you? And they they post in the groups to the volunteers. I was thinking about just, I heard some report where they were talking about people who are still in Ukraine not having worked for so long and running out of money. And then I just started thinking about just what we've all been through here in the U.S. with the pandemic and how disruptive that has been. And just thinking about trying to get everything kind of back on some kind of track or people who didn't have work and now do or you know just all the the things and and then I started thinking about what you said before about just cities being demolished and how how many lives are totally not just disrupted but totally destroyed
1: yeah I mean I think that's the big thing about forced migration it's not like moving Like, a lot of people think, oh, it's moving. And moving to another country is hard. And moving to another part of your own country is challenging. But the real damage is that your whole life is destroyed. And all of the familiar things that you know are either gone or exist in kind of weird fragments that now are not related to each other in a way that makes sense anymore. So I think that the emotional fallout for this, we are only beginning now to see. And it's not just that people saw violence. That's bad enough. But it's also that when your apartment is blown sky high, you lose all your familiar possessions. You lose your world. And for many of these people, their world is gone. It will never come back. No matter how much you rebuild, it will never come back. So the, the war is going to fall off the U.S. front pages. But the actual effects of the war haven't even started yet. And they will... Um, be with people for decades. You know, I've worked with people who were involved in the Russian invasion of Georgia in 2008. And I talked to them all the time. And when the war in Ukraine broke out, people were texting me at 3 o'clock in the morning because they couldn't sleep. I mean, they were up remembering how terrible it was. And many of them, their lives have never come back to being normal. They're poorer. Um, their, their families have been blown apart. You know, my friend Maya has not seen her sister in 14 years because she can't. Her sister is 15 miles away, and she cannot go and see her. So I think we're going to see those effects playing out for a long time to come.
0: When we spoke, Elizabeth Dunn was getting ready to head back to Poland. This time she was bringing some much-needed medical supplies that she'd managed to secure here in Bloomington. I asked her what she had planned for this next trip. So on this
1: trip, we're going to be going back to all the people that we met, people in the transit shelters, people who were volunteers, um, people. uh, We worked with a guy who had started out as a volunteer doing humanitarian aid at the shelter, and then he started moving humanitarian aid into Ukraine. And then he became sort of an amateur arms trafficker. So he was routing military supplies into Ukraine. We'll be talking to people like him, and we'll be talking to the political leadership. We'll be talking to people at the United Nations High Commission for Refugees to try and understand how the volunteer aid system came into being and why, why institutional aid had such a hard time starting up there, and what they see as the long-term needs and whether the institutional aid system can meet them. So that is the focus of the next trip. But of course, I will always be thinking about food and what people are eating. So we're also gonna be going to the, the help center on Pawavska Street to see what people are eating and to see how they're buying groceries and how their diets are changing as their finances and their cooking situation
0: changes. That's Elizabeth Cullen Dunn, food scholar and director of IU's New Center for Refugee Studies. Thank you so much for talking with me. It's always my pleasure, Kate. Earth Eats is one of my favorite shows. Elizabeth Dunn is currently in Poland at the border with Ukraine with an audio recorder in tow. We hope to talk with her again when she returns, so stay tuned to Earth Eats and subscribe to our podcast. You can find links to Elizabeth Dunn's work at our website, eartheats.org. Next up, we have a recipe from my garden for, of all things soup. French sorrel plant in a perennial garden bed next to my front porch. I've had it for years. It comes back every spring. Sorrel is a delicate leafy green with a distinctive lemony taste. I never know quite how to cook with it, but when I tried this soup recipe last year, I loved everything about it. It's rich and satisfying, but still light and fresh tasting it's a nice soup for spring or summer, and it's simple to prepare. You can probably find sorrel at one of the local farmer's markets or possibly at the grocery store. And if you have some growing in your garden, you can start there. Sorrel is a great green to grow in your garden because it is a perennial. It comes back year after year. As long as you can keep the deer off of it, you've got it three seasons out of the year. It's a very pretty plant too, so it's nice to put in your garden beds as a landscaping plant. It's got bright green, kind of oval shaped shiny leaves. It's a lot like spinach in texture, it's a very tender leaf. And then we'll want to wash it and spin it dry in a salad spinner. Once you have the sorrel leaves washed and spun, chop them up. You'll need two and a half cups. If you don't have enough sorrel, feel free to substitute spinach or charred leaves to make up the difference. Next you'll want to get the rest of the vegetables and herbs prepared. The recipe calls for one small onion, one medium peeled carrot, one stalk of celery, and two small potatoes. All of the vegetables should be diced into small pieces. The soup won't be blended, so think about what you would want in a spoon-sized bite of soup. Also, the smaller pieces will cook more quickly. The last ingredient to prepare is the fresh thyme. Strip the leaves from the stem and finely mince. Now you're ready to start assembling and cooking the soup. We're gonna start by melting two tablespoons of unsalted butter in a heavy pot, such as a Dutch oven. And to our melted butter, we will add the chopped celery, onions, and carrots. We'll cook these vegetables over a medium heat until they begin to soften and we'll add about two teaspoons of salt, a few grinds of pepper, and once the mirepoix vegetables, the carrots, the onions, and the celery are starting to get soft then we're going to add the diced potato, a third of a cup of uncooked rice, so that can be basmati or jasmine, and four cups of vegetable broth. You could also use a chicken stock for this and I've made my vegetable broth a little bit more rich by heating it up with some parmesan rinds. Really adds a nice savory flavor to soups. We'll simmer this on a low heat until the rice and potatoes are tender. That should take about 20 or 30 minutes. Once they are tender, we'll add the cream, the sorrel leaves, and some fresh thyme. And then once the sorrel is wilted, we'll taste and adjust the seasonings, maybe add a little bit of salt and pepper, and that's it. that our soup has been cooking for about 20 minutes. We're gonna check. Yep, those potatoes are tender and the rice is cooked. So now it's time to add the cream. It's one cup of cream, two teaspoons of fresh thyme, finely chopped, and then our sorrel leaves. And you're gonna want about two and a half cups of those. And just stir that in. Heat through and adjust the seasoning, and then you're ready to serve. This does not get pureed. I mean, you could do that if you'd like, but I think it's a really nice soup with uh, all of the textures of the diced potatoes, onions, and carrots, and celery, and then a little bit of that rice just to kind of thicken it and give it some body. The cream is adding the richness and then that bright sorrel flavor. The sorrel is very tart. It has a it has a lemony flavor. But in this dish, it's not overwhelming because of all the other flavors that you have going on and just the proportions. So it's a really nice soup. It's a great way to serve sorrel, and I hope you'll try it. As always, you can find the recipe at eartheats.org. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
3: The Earthies team includes Aabon Binder, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Josephine McRobbie, Daniela Richardson, Peyton Whaley, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed.
0: Special thanks this week to Elizabeth Cullen Dunn and the Pancake Guy from Florida.
3: Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby additional music on the show comes to us from the artist at universal production music Earth Eat is produced and edited by kate young and our executive producer is john bailey